Welcome to another podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. You can find out more about CGI Burlington on our website at cgiburlington.org. Age 16, was a, I just describe it as a magical year for me. It was a pivotal year. Uh, Age 15, I began to question purpose of life. Who was I? What was my role in the world? What happens after death? But at age 16, I I really came to a sense of myself. I was grade 11 at a school called George S. Henry. And I just changed to this school and I found a group of West Indian students that I began to hang out with and began to identify myself as a young black male and have a sense of belonging. And about halfway through the year, we all went out to this uh, store, athlete store, uh, sports store, and bought the same running shoes, the same color, uh, the same stripe in it. And we were a force to be reckoned with. I mean, we just we had swagger. We walked up and down the school, and we all had the same shoes. And I had a great sense of belonging. There was another clique that had a similar sense of renown in the school, and these were the jocks. These were the true athletes. And somehow, we ended up squaring off. And their leader squared off with me. At the time, fortunately... I was studying martial arts. I was only a yellow belt. But this club that I belonged to, my my mom uh, sent me there, it was for poor people. And I paid, my mom paid $10 a month. They did not do this to make money. Uh, They had this club to take people off the street and and give them a sense of meaning and purpose and, and, and belonging. And so I benefited from this club. When we squared off, this gentleman was a bit taller than me, uh, with all of his bravado, and I was fearless. I looked him in the eye, and just as it looked like we were going to end up in some sort of a fight, I struck him. I struck him in the face, and he he just collapsed in front of me, and the fight was over. Immediately, it just cascaded through the whole school. Adrian is a black belt. Everyone was afraid of me. Did I correct them? Did I tell them, no, no, I'm just a yellow belt? No. I rode on this reputation that I was a black belt in karate. The whole school feared me. And the teachers just wondering what to do, how to turn this to be constructive. Uh, The gym teacher had the great idea that I could take gym class. And for the next probably six weeks, I became the gym instructor. And I was to train everyone Uh, in martial arts and self-defense. Now, I hardly knew anything. But what I knew, I passed on. Years later, when I wanted to take up martial arts again, I could not find a club that had the discipline and the rigor of this club that I belonged to. As I said, they didn't do it for the money, and they didn't advance people. I was a yellow belt for a really long time. But we would go to other clubs... And we would fight anybody of any rank. And they taught us to be fearless. And so we had an attitude of fearlessness. 
That's what I want to talk about today. Not so much fearlessness, but attitude. Where do our attitudes come from? What is attitude? And why does it matter? And I think as we move into Passover and the days of unleavened bread, it'll be beneficial to us to look at our attitudes. And I did want to just mention a quote from Bruce Lee. He said, I fear not the man who has practiced 10,000 kicks once, but I fear the man who has practiced one kick 10,000 times. And that's where mastery comes from. And so we can be into a whole bunch of things. What is it? uh, Jack of all trades, master of none. Or we can master one thing. And again, even though I was a yellow belt, uh, I have to say that because of this club, uh, I had mastery over very few moves that they just had us go over and over and over again. We need to have mastery over our attitudes. And so what I want to talk about is how we can ensure that we govern our attitudes and that our attitudes don't govern us. And I thank you, is it Rosina, for joining us? As as I talk, you might find that there are some things that may not be clear. We do have a discussion afterwards. Feel free to join in and ask any questions at that time. So first of all, the dictionary definition. An attitude is a settled way of thinking or feeling about someone or something. Typically one that is reflected in a person's behavior. So I just want to point out uh, something very critical in this definition. Two two aspects of it. Number one, it's a, a pattern of thinking or feeling towards someone or something. And number two is it results in behavior. So first we have a disposition towards someone or towards something that generates feelings that ultimately result in behavior. I'd like us to think about it this way. Our attitude is our interface with the world around us. So here we are, and then there's all these things around us. We have little Julius who's three months old. As he grows, he will have to develop an interface with the world around him. This is going to be his attitude. Some things he will welcome, other things he'll push away. He's not born with this attitude. It's something that he will develop, or this set of attitudes. If we were to lift him up right now, take him out of Canada, and have him now at three months grow up in Japan, Africa, China, India, Middle East, Europe, anywhere else, he will develop a different set of attitudes based on those who educate him and those around him. Where did our attitudes come from? Let's begin in Galatians 5 and verse 22. certainly appreciate the special music and the effort that was made to bring us that. And in the special music, they spoke about 
without necessarily knowing it, the attitude of Jesus Christ toward everything around him. And they spoke about his love for everyone. So the, the attitude of Christ toward all mankind was one of divine love. What is our attitude? Galatians 5. And in verse 22, it says that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance, against such there is no law. These fruit that are listed really and truly represent the interface that we should have toward those around us. This this is how we should interface with brethren and with the world at large. So we have here a measure against which we can analyze ourselves. How do we interact with others? How do we speak of others? Not just in the church, but the broader society. We can compare it to this list. So with these attitudes that we have, we have to recognize that they are pre-programmed. Again, to speak of Julius, uh, now he's interfacing with his grandparents. They have certain values. They're going to pass on those values to their grandchild. That grandchild then will have this pre-programmed pattern of how to interact with people, whether hatefully or lovingly and will interpret people around him a certain way. So you have a certain look that has a certain symbolic meaning to me. I'm going to have an attitude of welcoming or resistance and hostility. All of this is pre-programmed, and we all have it. And we need to recognize it, and where it's good and proper, embrace it. But where it's dysfunctional and inappropriate, we need to de-leaven and exchange these attitudes for another set. So the first point that I have in terms of why this matters is that attitudes precede behavior. Sin is behavior. So when we sin, we're engaging in a certain behavior. Before we get to that point, we have an attitude toward the object involved in the sin. Rather than try to struggle at the point of behavior, Let's fight and struggle at the point of our pre-programming. Why is it that I'm attracted to this thing? Or why am I hostile to this person? And rather than try to struggle at the point of behavior, let's examine what is the attitude behind the behavior. By the way, your attitudes are being examined by the largest corporations. And when they advertise to you, they're not advertising to you randomly. They're not in the boardroom saying, you have, does anybody have a good idea? Uh, we want to advertise uh, orange juice. Do you have, a, you have a good, oh yeah, that's a good idea. Let's go with that. No way. They're recruiting the top minds to analyze the target, to understand your pre-programming, and to tap into it and to develop your attitude from that pre-programming so that the behavior that they're looking for, which is the purchase decision, is natural. 
one of the top, I'll call him a scientist, he's a psychologist, an anthropologist, one of the top consultants that they hire is a gentleman by the name of Clotaire Rapai. I don't know if you've heard of Clotaire Rapai. If you wanted to engage Clotaire at the discount rate, then you would engage him in his group package. He is a born French man, but now he's American, lives in New York. And so if you as a marketing VP uh, wanted to better understand how to reach your target, uh, but you wanted to just kind of test the water with him, then you would buy him on the group package, which is to spend a weekend with him in New York. He's not coming to you. You come to him. But you come on the group package, so there'd be a dozen executives. Each one pays, what do you think? A lot. <laughs> a quarter million dollars. So you come to him for a weekend, and you each pay a quarter million dollars, and that's the group rate. Once you're convinced, then you can engage him uh, more exclusively. So he's written a number of books, and his tagline, the tagline for his company, is the reptilian always wins. The reptilian always wins. That's what he's known for. And so what this means is the brain has three levels of activity, the highest level being cognitive. It's the part you're using now as I'm speaking English words and you're processing. So everything that we do as humans that animals cannot do is done with the cognitive brain. That's the, the highest level, the human brain. Below that is the limbic system. This is our emotional system, and they sometimes call this the mammalian brain because we share with, with mammals this uh, affectation, this emotion, uh, re emotional response towards others. Below these two levels of activity is what he calls the reptilian brain or the primitive brain. And, and when uh, a baby is conceived, the reptilian brain is the first brain that is formed. And it's responsible for survival. It's what keeps us breathing. It, when, we're, when we're unconscious, when we're sleeping, all the systems that continue to run are governed by this brain. So it's responsible for survival. We might call it the primitive brain because they believe in evolution. They say reptilian, mammalian, human. Rapai developed his theory as a psychologist working with autistic children. So he was responsible to try to solve why can't autistic children learn the way other children do. And he spent a lot of time analyzing these children and then developed a breakthrough insight. And so at a conference of parents, he was presenting his insights as to why autistic children have trouble learning. And he's presenting his insights. At the end of the conference, he was approached by an executive at Procter & Gamble. And the executive came to him and said, I need you to give this speech at my company. And so Clotaire was like, um, are there a lot of parents there that have autistic children? And he's like, no, no, but the insight that you have will help us in our marketing. So he's like, okay. And that's what launched his career. And once he figured out the kind of money he could make helping marketing executives, he dropped the autistic children. But his insight is this, that all learning 
requires emotion. And that everything that we learn, initially in the early stages, he calls it imprinting. There's an imprinting that takes place. It's like when you see um, a duck thinking that a boot is its mother. It's because it was imprinted very early on to think that the boot was its mother. And so now it follows the boot wherever it goes. So the farmer puts on the boot and walks around, and the, and the duck, duckling thinks that that's its mother. So that's called imprinting. All of us go through imprinting when we're learning. And his big insight was that whatever the emotion was that was involved at that initial learning of whatever the concept is, that's the imprint. And that will have the most power from that point forward in our lives. And it's learned at the reptilian level. It's, it's nonverbal. It's really the limbic and reptilian systems working together to become imprinted with that concept. So the cognitive holds the concept, but the imprinting is at the limbic and reptilian level. So today, Procter & Gamble, IBM, Boeing, Chrysler, General Electric, Ford, DuPont, GM, American Express, J.P. Morgan, 3M, Citibank, Louis Vuitton, Discover, NASA, Pfizer, I could go on and on. All of these are his customers. In one experiment, so that Procter & Gamble, the issue they were having was introducing coffee to the Japanese. No matter how much marketing they did, it was unsuccessful. Is this okay? Yeah. So they needed to understand, why can't we market coffee to Japan? And so Clotilde said, well, let's start with, how are you successfully marketing it in North America? And, and then what you're doing in North America, will that work in Japan? So he, does, he has a methodology to this, and it's three hours. So he would bring in a group, a focus group, so all of you would be involved for three hours. In hour number one, we're all sitting in a circle, and he has his clipboard, and this is, goes on for an hour. And he asks the focus group, tell me about coffee. What do you like about coffee, Daniel? And so... Daniel tells me about coffee. And he, he, oh, could you just repeat that? Just read. Uh, Rosina, what's, what are your thoughts about coffee? And you know, how do you feel when you don't get your coffee? Great, that's great. Uh, your thoughts. After an hour, he calls for a break. Everyone can go. He's got tons of notes because he's carefully asked everyone to. Could you just repeat that, Larry? Tons of notes. Calls for break. Everybody leaves, refreshes themselves, gets their coffee. He takes these notes and he throws them in the bin. Couldn't care less. Garbage. Means nothing. Well, why did you do that? Oh, that was for them. It's important for them to feel important. So I don't care the answer. They want to sound intelligent. So I give them this hour so they can tell each other, how, show each other how intelligent they are. But I don't care about what they're saying. Calls them back for the next hour. And now he delves a bit deeper. Now, all of his questions are around emotion. And he wants to know, Lisa, if you don't get your coffee first thing in the morning, tell us how you feel. Let's, let's talk about your emotions. And this whole hour now is an exploration of your emotions. After an hour, he calls a break. Everybody leaves. All of these notes go in the garbage with the others. Couldn't care less. Why? He says emotions are too complicated. 
It's, it's hard to analyze. It's the third hour he's after. So when you all come back for the third hour, all the chairs are gone. Replacing the chairs are sleeping bags and pillows. The lights are dim. Soft music is playing. Ask everybody to lie down and just totally relax. There's a pad and paper beside you, a pad and pencil beside you. Just start thinking all the way back to your first experience with coffee. Try to think. Try to go back further. Are you sure that's the earliest memory? Can you go back even further? And after about 20 minutes of this reflecting or half an hour of this reflecting, then he turns the lights on and says, get up and write. Write your first experiences with coffee. And now, those notes... These are gold. He collects these notes, and these go to the lab. And these are analyzed. And he has an algorithm, a methodology that he goes through. Uh, I, I think it's the verbs that he's interested in, the verbs that people use. But he says that this gives him what he calls the code. The code. And so what he told Procter & Gamble was that the code for coffee in North America is safety. These codes are all one-word codes. The code to sell coffee to North Americans is safety. Why? He said because the earliest memories that North Americans have of coffee is as a child in the bed, in the fetal position, while mom and dad get up early, whether it's mom or dad, they go down, and one of the first things they do is they put on the coffee. And it's the aroma that goes up to the bedroom. And that's the earliest memory for North Americans. They're home, they're safe. They're in bed, they're in the fetal position. Mom and dad are downstairs, everything is good. And so it's not the taste of coffee, it's the smell and the feeling of safety. Procter & Gamble launched a campaign where the ad showed a young man, about 25, coming home, to his parents' home and letting himself in. And the first thing he does is goes to the kitchen and puts on the coffee. The aroma goes upstairs to the parents. It wakes up the mother and she smells the aroma and she says, he's home. He was deployed in Iraq or Afghanistan. Now he's safe. The home is the womb. This time it's reversed. The mom is in the bed and the, the child is in the kitchen. Subconsciously, we understand all of this. The coffee flew off the shelves because of tapping into the code. The attitude that we have toward this external object, which is coffee. What is the attitude toward it? It's one of welcoming and feeling safe. He helped Chrysler develop the PT Cruiser. You know the PT Cruiser? It's this sort of gangster-looking vehicle on the outside, and on the inside, it's futuristic. Masculine on the outside, feminine on the inside. Retro on the outside, futuristic on the inside. The code for the PT Cruiser was gangster. Helped with the Hummer. The code for Hummer, dominance. You, if you're living in the city... Newsflash, you don't need a Hummer. You don't need a Hummer. 
the code, the psychological code is dominance. I'm going to be on the highway. I'm going to be the most powerful vehicle on the highway. So tapping into these attitudes, he's able to have these companies enjoy incredible success. And they gladly pay him whatever he asks. Let's turn to Luke 4. To look at this imprinting. Rapai says, Rapai explains it this way. There is always a first time we imprint something. And when we do, we create mental highways. We make use of these highways all the time and they become unconscious. So you cannot access the code consciously. You have to access the code unconsciously. So it, it runs below the conscience. Let's see this now, or it runs below the conscious mind. In Luke 4, beginning in verse 14, Jesus has just overcome the devil. And it says, Jesus returned in power, in the power of the Spirit into Galilee, and there went out a fame of him through all the region round about. So everybody is talking about him. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified of all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. So as a, as a child, as a baby, he grew up in Nazareth. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath. So every Sabbath, he went to the synagogue. That was his custom. And he stood up to read. And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. This is Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised. So we see in this passage in Isaiah, Christ's attitude toward those around him. It's one of compassion, it's one of love, it's one of mercy. To preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And then he closed the book. And he gave it to the minister and sat down. So now they're ready for him to teach from what he just read. And so the eyes of all of them that were in the synagogue were fastened upon him. And he began then to teach them. So he began to say to them, Today is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. So in other words, I am this messenger that was prophesied to come. And all bear him witness and wondered at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, isn't this Joseph's son? So they, they liked this. So here is Christ and their attitude toward what they were hearing was positive. They interpret this as gracious because the prophecy in Isaiah is toward Israel. The brokenhearted, the captive, all of the, this is the Messiah who's coming to release Israel. So as they, Israel, are listening to these prophecies about Israel, they have a very positive response. It's gracious. But they're just wondering about Christ. Like, okay, this is Joseph's son. And what's his genealogy? He's saying that he's fulfilling this, this role. Now he says to them this. So because this prophecy is about healing, 
He said to them, you will surely say unto me this proverb. So he knows them. That once you hear these gracious words, I can predict, basically what he's saying is, because you are self-centered, you're going to interpret this prophecy in a self-oriented way. And now you're going to have an expectation of me to heal you. So he said to them, you will surely say unto me this Proverbs, physician, heal yourself. You're here in Nazareth. This is where you're from. We have sickness here. So heal yourself. Whatsoever we heard you have done in Capernaum, do also here in your own country. And he said to them, truly, I say unto you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. He is speaking here of imprinting. So if Daniel is here among us, and we know him, or let's say Landon, even a younger man here, we know him. He's grown up with us. We know him. We have an imprinting of Landon. If suddenly Landon goes away and comes back and says, I'm a prophet, we're going to laugh him out of town because the imprinting has already taken place. We know who you are. You have a place. We, we, we associate you in a certain way in our society. For you to come back and say you're something else, we won't accept it. But if you go somewhere else where people don't know you, there hasn't been that imprinting. So you can go to them and say, I'm a prophet, and that's the first imprinting that they'll have. But we've imprinted you another way, and now you're going against that imprinting. So no prophet is accepted in his own country. But I tell you of a truth, and then he goes on to say, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, when great famine was through the land. But unto none of them did he, was Elijah sent, except unto Sarepta of the city of Sidon, a Gentile city, unto a woman that was a widow. And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them were cleansed except Naaman the Syrian, another Gentile. So they're expecting, it's gracious because it's about Israel. And now he's saying, you've been imprinted in a way that you're not going to accept me. But I want you to know that Israel is not the focus or the sole re recipient of benefits from God. Look how these Gentiles were blessed. Now they have an attitude problem. Verse 28. And all they in the synagogue... When they heard these things, they were filled with anger. So this interface that they have with the world is great as long as they're in the center. As long as they're the recipients of all the blessings, then we can get along. This works well. The minute we are minimized, the minute we are marginalized, the minute another group is enhanced, we've got a problem. So much so, they're full of anger. And, and, and this is the attitude now. The attitude toward Christ is hostility. What's the behavior that follows? They rose up and thrust him out of the city. So here's the behavior that depends upon the attitude. They rose up and thrust him out of the city and led him unto the brow of the hill whereon their city was built that they might cast him down headlong. They wanted to kill him. So this behavior of wanting to kill Christ, it didn't just come out of the blue. It was born out of the attitude. 
the attitude was born out of self-centeredness. So in my world, I need to be the great one. So any, any, anything that comes to challenge me, as when I was in grade 11 and we had the jocks uh, challenging the West Indians, my world then was the West Indian world. I wasn't a part of the jock world. And so I had an attitude because I felt marginalized and I, my identity felt threatened. Same thing here. Luke 6, let's go to Luke 6. Luke 6, and beginning in verse 43, we see that for a good tree does not bear bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. So if we see the fruit really as the behavior and the consequences of the behavior, the tree is really the attitude. It's what's going on internally. And then from what's going on internally, behavior is born. For every tree is known by its fruit. Men do not gather figs from thorns, nor do they gather grapes from a bramble bush. A good man, out of the good treasure of his heart, brings forth good. So the question is, what's going on in our heart? Our heart is the seat of Uh, cognitive activity and the emotion associated with that. So what's going on inside us? We can't hide it. We can't hide it. It's going to come out. It's going to come out in discussion, the words we use, how we describe people, and it's going to come out in behavior. Let's take Christ and let's throw him off the cliff. This is what comes out of the heart. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth fruit, and an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart. So there's an attitude toward those around him that eventually brings forth evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. So attitude, thoughts, words, actions. We need to really strike this at the level of attitude. Luke 10. So, what goes on inside my mind, my heart, you don't know. Um, There was a psychoanalyst, R.D. Lang, famous psychoanalyst, R.D. Lang. He's a wonderful saying. He says, uh, experience is man's invisibility to man. That whatever I've experienced and my thoughts about that experience, you don't know. It's invisible to you and vice versa. But what Christ is saying is eventually it comes out. So we can pretend, but eventually it will manifest itself. Luke 10. Let's see it in action. Luke 10, in verse 38, we see Christ being welcomed into Martha's house as a guest. Now it happened as they went that he entered a certain village and a certain woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. So this is a good attitude. This, her, her interface with Christ 
is one of welcoming. So she welcomed him into her home. And she had a sister called Mary, who also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. So Jesus is teaching, and Mary's there listening, Martha's listening, all the disciples are listening, whoever was uh, invited there. But then Martha was distracted with much serving. So Martha has a love for the Lord, and she wants to make sure that afterwards the food is ready and everyone's going to have a good time. But Christ is teaching the words of eternal life. And Martha is listening with one ear, but her real focus is on the hospitality, the food and the drink and making sure that all of that's going to be ready. Luke describes it as a distraction. Now, to Martha, she wasn't distracted. She was focused. It was Mary that was distracted. Because Mary, you know, sisters would have a code, right? So when I give you that dirty look, it means get in here. And you're not responding, okay? Maybe when I start clanging the pots and pans, you'll get the hint that I'm upset and you should come into the kitchen and see what's going on. Mary doesn't respond. Christ is teaching the words of eternal life. And she's tracking with him. And, and one, one idea is building on another, and she's sitting be- before the Lord and really getting it. It's, it's making sense to her. And so she's focused on the Lord. Martha, meanwhile, is taking the oven door and banging it, trying to get Mary's attention, and Mary's just focused. And so now the attitude of Martha toward her sister is building up. And she's now having a conversation inside her head. Mary always does this. She was always the privileged one. She would always get out of work. She's doing this on purpose. She's telling herself a story. Eventually, it's going to result in behavior. And now here's the behavior. Verse 40. Martha was distracted with much serving, and she approached Mary and said, Mary, Can I have a word? No, she has such hostility now toward her sister, she can't even talk to Mary. She goes straight to Christ with her complaint. So she approached Christ and said, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to serve alone? So so she made it very apparent that she's struggling here. You know, she's trying to get the tuna casserole and the lasagna and and everything trying to come together at the same time. And it's quite a logistical demand. And obviously she made it obvious that she's struggling. And Mary wouldn't get up. And instead of approaching Mary, she approaches Christ and says, don't you care that Mary, that my sister has left me to serve alone, therefore... Tell her to help me. It's your sister. Can't you talk to your sister yourself? Well, what about us? Do we look at a situation and start giving ourselves a story? And then instead of going to the brother or sister and, and addressing them directly, we tell everybody else. Same thing here. We develop an attitude and eventually it comes out. 
And Jesus answered and said to her, and, and Luke writes, he's quoting, Martha, Martha. It's almost like, it's like saying Martha once wasn't enough. She was probably going on and on and on. Martha, Martha. The second Martha was probably louder than the first. Martha, Martha. In other words, stop. You are worried and troubled about many things. So you have an attitude toward, again, the things around you, and it's troubling you. But one thing is necessary, and Mary has chosen that good part, which will not be taken away from her. Again, attitude leads to emotions and thoughts, and eventually results in action. 2 Corinthians 10. Second Corinthians 10 and verse 3. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. I would propose here that when Clotaire Rapai advises these corporations about how to manipulate us with the tagline or the slogan, that the reptilian always wins. That's this. And this is where he's wrong. Because we are in war with the flesh. The reason the reptilian always wins is it's, it's lustful. It wants for the self. And, it's, and it's, it's that deep imprinting that the conscious mind comes along much later. The, the, or I should say the cognitive thinking comes along much light, later. So again, to take Julius as the, the grandson uh, for, for um, uh, uh, Miola and Lee, yes. Um, they're going to be teaching Julius, but not now. But Julius is still learning now. And these lessons that he's learning now are going to be much more deeply imprinted than anything he learns later when the cognitive mind is better developed. That's why the reptilian always wins. So as we war with the flesh, the impulses and the desires from this deep subconscious part of the brain is much more powerful than the cognitive. However, because we have the cognitive mind, we can hear the gospel and we can read the gospel and we can process what we hear and learn and open ourselves up to receive the Holy Spirit. And this is where Clotaire Rapai is wrong. That when he presents to us his offer of self-benefit, because we are putting on the mind of Christ and we have the power of the Holy Spirit, we can resist our base desires. And so we, do, we are at war with the flesh but we have help we have this divine help verse 4 for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal we've gone beyond the carnal but mighty through god to the pulling down of strongholds these strongholds are the early imprinting how we have been programmed 
again, if, you know, for me, uh, at age 16, getting programmed, I would say to become racist, to, to think of black as superior, white as inferior. This is all carnal programming that as I am now walking in Christ, all of that is left behind. But it, it takes this spiritual battle of overcoming this, this imprinting. And even harder to overcome is imprinting of lust. I want this. I want that. I want for myself. This is where we truly need God's spirit to pull down these strongholds. Casting down imaginations, and again, the reptilian brain is visual because it works before we have language. And so it generates imaginations of our, our lusts being satisfied. Casting down these imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ and having in a readiness to revenge all having in a readiness to revenge all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled look look at this reprogramming that's required now using these spiritual weapons luke 9 Luke 9, these are Christ's disciples. They've been with him. They're learning from him. They don't yet have the Holy Spirit. Luke 9, verse 51, it came to pass when the time was come that he should be received up. He steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem and sent messengers before him. And they went and entered into a village of the Samaritans to make ready for him. So he was going to pass through Samaria. And so they're going on ahead to say he's coming. But the Samaritans did not receive him because his face was though he would go to Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, so these, these are his students. They've been understanding the kingdom of God is coming, that he's this coming king. These are the students. When they saw this, they said, Lord, will you, do you want that we command fire to come down from heaven and destroy them? the way Elijah did, so they're justifying it now through Elijah. But again, it's attitude. We're special. They're not recognizing that we're special. Should we destroy them with fire? Because they're not recognizing that we're special. But he turned, verse 55, and rebuked them and said, you know not what manner of spirit you are of. So this attitude of hostility toward people who don't recognize you as special. You don't know what manner of spirit this is. So attitude is an access point for the devil. Where when we have attitudes of hostility, we're opening the door wide for the devil to come in and take advantage of us. For the Son of Man hasn't come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And this is the attitude that we should have. That people might not understand today, but it's not God's will or desire to destroy them. It's his will and desire to save them. 
And so this is the attitude that we must have. And if we, if we should have this attitude towards all mankind, how much more forgiving should we be to God's people, whom he's already recruited? Let's just look at Ephesians before we conclude. Ephesians 5, and beginning in verse 1, he says, Be you therefore followers of God. In other words, stop following the devil. Let's follow God as dear children. And so what does that look like? And walk in love. This, this is the attitude that we should walk in. Walk in love as Christ also has loved us and has given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savour. And this, this, is, this is why the reptilian does not win anymore. Because the mind of Christ is self-sacrificing. So at our root, the root of our carnal nature is all about self. It's about getting for self. But we've now been given Christ's mind, which is the exact opposite. It's about sacrificing self. And Christ's mind is far more powerful than ours. So fornication, all uncleanness, covetousness, all of these things are from the reptilian brain. All of these things, let it not be once named among you as becometh saints. So these things are the behavior. If we're going to fulfill this scripture so that this kind of behavior is never once named among us, it starts in the heart. And it starts with our attitudes toward others so uh, if we're male do women exist for our pleasure is is that the attitude if we're female do males just exist for our pleasure is that the attitude is that the interface that we have with those around us that we just use them or is our interface that these people are made in the image of god and our purpose, or God's purpose, is for them to fulfill their design to reflect the image of God. And so we would never use people made in the image of God to satisfy ourselves. And so it's the attitude that we have to reprogram in order to conquer the dysfunctional behavior. Neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor mocking, which are unsuitable, Instead, giving of thanks. For this you know, no whoremonger, these are the behaviors, nor unclean person, nor covetous man, who is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. So we must not engage in these behaviors. We will be successful by addressing the attitudes. Let no man deceive you with vain words, for because of these things, comes the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. For you were sometimes darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness and righteousness and truth, proving what is acceptable unto the Lord, and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, 
but rather reprove them. Verse 15, see then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. Let's conclude, brethren, in Third John. And then we'll go to Philippians 2. Third John. We see here an example of a wonderful attitude, one that we should strive to model. And in Third John, what we see is a young is a man called Gaius and John is writing to him and in 3 John verse 1 he writes the elder to the beloved Gaius he loved Gaius whom I love in truth beloved I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul for I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Beloved, that's Gaius, it's a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are. So these brothers would be passing through, and Gaius had such a tremendous attitude toward them that he would really bless them and help them. And, and the word is getting back to John. And John is writing to Gaius and saying, basically, what you're doing is amazing. You really get this. You have really grasped the truth. And because you've grasped it, it's coming out in your behavior towards strangers who are just passing through. They testified of your love before the church. So they came back to their congregation and just told of all the wonderful things that Gaius had done for them. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. So they would give them what they needed for their journey. For they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these that we may be fellow workers for the truth. So John is telling us what sort of attitude we should have to those who are supporting the work of Christ. Now, there's a different attitude. Verse 9. I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first. So he's operating from the reptilian brain. It's all about him and how great he is. Because of that, he now has an attitude toward John. He likes to put himself first. He does not acknowledge our authority. That doesn't work for me. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us, and not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers. So here come the brothers, and we see two different attitudes. We see Gaius, who welcomes them, gives them everything they need, and sends them on their way, supporting them so they can be effective. That's Gaius. Diotrephes is the exact opposite. Does not allow them to come, because it compromises how he is perceived. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to 
and puts them out of the church. So we see two totally different attitudes. We, we have to choose. These attitudes are on a slow boil. And unfortunately for us, a lot of the dysfunctional attitudes were programmed into us as children. And they are so deeply wired that, for the most part, Clotaire Rapai, when he talks of humanity in general, he says the reptilian always wins. These base desires, this base programming is so effective that he speaks into that. We fortunately are putting on the mind of Christ. And this is why the reptilian fails. Because it's not about us. We are willing to sacrifice ourselves for the benefit of others. And that's where we'll conclude then in Philippians 2. Scripture reading for today. Bruce Lee said that he doesn't fear the man who practices 10,000 kicks once. He fears the man who practices one kick 10,000 times. And that's what we're involved in here. We, we need to become the Bruce Lee of Christian living. And, and what we're practicing, and we have opportunity, we have ten, tens of thousands of opportunities to practice this. It's as we interface with those around us, while our natural programming is to respond with ego. How dare you insult me? How dare you not recognize how special and important I am? We use these opportunities to practice the mind of Christ and to say, yes, you are more important. Yes, you are made in the image of God. And yes, I will sacrifice, even though you hate me, I will sacrifice myself for you. This is, what, this is the, the Christian walk. And this is what we are practicing over and over and over again until we have mastered it. So that when the real examination comes, we pass with flying colors. Philippians 2. Therefore, if there is any comfort in Christ, because that's really where we're going to find it, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded. Let's all put on the mind of Christ. Having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. Conquer the reptilian brain. Don't operate from that level. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. But in lowliness of mind, and that's only going to come through the help of the Holy Spirit, let each esteem others better than himself. This is the reprogramming. This is the attitude. What is our attitude toward those around us? They're better than us. And if we can just master this, that it's an honor to be in your presence, future king with Christ. It's my honor to serve you. This is what we're mastering. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. This is the attitude we must have. Let this mind be in you. So, 
let's, let's replace the natural programming with divine programming. This is the pattern of thinking that we're looking for. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, he was in heaven, he had the image of God, didn't consider it robbery to be equal with God. In other words, he wasn't operating from this self-orientation, thinking that he needs to stay in that high status. Instead, verse 7, he made himself of no reputation, so ego is gone, taking the form of a slave and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. And as we go into Passover, we will spend time, and Pastor Murray and I will be talking about and we'll be rehearsing the death of the cross. And the reason for that is, that's what enables us to put on the mind of Christ. And, and out of the treasure of our hearts, if we have Christ in our heart, good things will come out. So brethren, let's understand that our attitude is our interface to those and to, to people and things around us. And our behavior towards people and things around us is rooted in our attitude. And these are pre-programmed patterns. And so we have a choice to make. We go with our natural programming of me first, or we adopt the divine programming of God first. So as we approach the holy days, let's consider and examine and master our attitudes. This has been a podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. We hope you are blessed by it. To find out more about CGI Burlington, visit our website at cgiburlington.org.